The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the coronation episode of Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson, and I've been talking to the distinguished historian Dr. Francis Young, a specialist in English religion and folklore whose publications include studies of witchcraft in the modern Roman Catholic Church, monasticism in Suffolk, the history of Anglican exorcism, a life of Edmund, the 9th century martyred king, and a history of deacons in the Church of England, to which he belongs. He's, in fact, a reader in the Church of England. His knowledge of the rich and sometimes confusing symbolism of English coronations is second to none. And one of the paradoxes that I asked him to explain is how the only service in which the English monarch declares his or her Protestantism in the most uncompromising terms should also be so profoundly Catholic in its symbolism, even to the extent of the monarch wearing robes loosely based on those of the medieval Catholic clergy. How will King Charles's coronation differ from that of his mother and his predecessors down the centuries? what the coronations tell us about the changing religious climate of religion in England and the United Kingdom. What will this coronation tell us about the personal faith of our new king, who is arguably the most high church and sacramentally inclined English monarch for centuries? I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I learned so much. Francis, one of the invaluable resources you provided for this coronation is a rather startling side-by-side comparison of the order of service or liturgies or whatever you want to call them of the 1953 coronation and the 2023 coronation. I'm struck by the similarities, but even more the differences. It's not just that, as everybody knows, this service is going to be enormously slimmed down, going to take up a lot less time. It's a question of what's been left out. And I wondered if you could explain what's been left out with a particular emphasis on the theological significance of what's in and what's out. Yes, so the basic structure of the service is essentially the same as every coronation that has happened in England since the Norman Conquest, with the notable exception of the coronation of James II, who, because he was a Catholic, uh, didn't have an Anglican communion service in his coronation. Uh, but essentially, you've got the main parts there. You've got the, the recognition, you've got the anointing, you've got the communion service, you've got the investment with regalia, and you've got in a much modified form the homage as well. But there are some notable omissions. So, for example, we've got a, a much simplified presentation of regalia. Some of the words of presentation of the regalia have been altered in large and small ways. To take an example, you've got the presentation of the the sword of temporal justice, 
which uh, originally had formula of words associated with some some rather sort of full-blooded language about the punishment of evildoers and so forth, and that's been that's been taken away. Uh, the presentation of the ring, uh, which incidentally won't be placed on the king's finger, but will be acknowledged by the king. Exactly what that means, we're not quite clear yet whether that means the king will touch it, perhaps, or simply nod at it. But that used to be accompanied with words along the lines of describing it as the seal of Catholic faith and very much associating it with that title. Indeed, it is said, and I, I know through well, from reading from the Order of Service, the words used to be, receive the ring of kingly dignity and the seal of Catholic faith. And that's gone, and yes. I'm not quite sure why it's gone. Well, one possible reason is that the, the title Defender of the Faith is very prominent in that prayer, uh, and it may well be that the king is, is, is reluctant to put that at the, at the foreground of the, of the coronation in quite the same way as his predecessors. But, I mean, that's, that's idle speculation. It, the suggestion might have come equally from the Archbishop of Canterbury and from, from the Church of England, but it's been rewritten so that the focus is on a covenant between the king and people. So that's, uh, that's quite a significant change. The prayer of enthroning has been drastically cut down. One of the biggest losses, in my view, there's a, a, a beautiful prayer that came after the crowning itself, unaccompanied by any words, traditionally, and indeed still the case in this year's coronation is unaccompanied by any words. The archbishop simply places the crown on the king's head. But then, traditionally, the archbishop will say a prayer, God crown you, with a crown of righteousness and so forth. And so there's this, there's this sort of blessing after crowning, and that's completely gone. And I think there's, yes, there's, there's significant changes also to the communion service. So the, the creed, for example, has been dropped from the communion service uh, in, order to, in order to shorten it. And the communion service, of course, is, is largely modelled after what we might find in the Church of England's common worship, which was introduced in 2000 rather than the Book of Common Prayer of 1662, which uh, formed the basis for the communion liturgy in Elizabeth II's coronation. So, If I can ask you about that, um, on the one hand, I imagine, I haven't really kept up with Anglican liturgies since the days of the um, Alternative Service Book versus the Book of Common Prayer, but I, I imagine that common worship in some ways resembles the Novus Ordo mass of the catholic church because certainly yeah, for one, one of my friends um, was involved in drafting one of the eucharistic prayers for the alternative service book and it certainly did resemble quite closely the eucharistic prayer one of the eucharistic prayers of the catholic church but leaving out the creed seems to be an extraordinary thing to do yeah, so the, the, the creed ought to be said on a Sunday, uh, and it ought to be said on any red-letter day, so on the major feast days. Uh, but the creed would not normally be said as part of a, a weekday celebration of the Eucharist. But there's certainly an argument to be made that an occasion as solemn as a coronation is effectively a, a, major, a major festival, albeit a, a standalone one. So yes, certainly there, there has been a degree of controversy about the omission of the of the creed and there's also an omission of any act of, of of contrition which normally a eucharistic service will begin with some sort of act of contrition uh, i mean arguably there's an implied one because there's a kyrie that's sung uh, but normally there would be a more formal act of contrition which isn't which isn't there uh, in this particular eucharist on the one hand the king 
has removed the reference to receiving the ring of the Catholic faith. On the other hand, he will say, I, Charles, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify and declare that I am a faithful Protestant and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers, according to law. So it's a very clear declaration that he is a Protestant. Of course, those words are preceded by the Archbishop of Canterbury saying, Your Majesty, are you willing to make, subscribe and declare to the statutory accession declaration oath? So in other words, the king is required by law, is he not, to declare his Protestantism. Nonetheless, yes, it's right. not a word, you, this... compared to 1953, it's not a word you hear in the Church of England very often. If I say to somebody, are you a, are you a, are you a Protestant, they'll, they'll say, even if, they're, even if they're sort of evangelical or low church, they're quite quick to say Anglican, which again is a word more universally used in the Church of England now than it was 70 years ago. But I think for, for a lot of people it will be quite shocking that the Protestant nature of the Church of England is underlined so firmly and clearly in an era when... On the whole, the average worship in an Anglican church, including those in the middle and even some evangelical ones, tends to stress the Catholic heritage of Anglicanism. Yes, I, I think it's a, it's a strange paradox, really, because on the one hand, the, the Church of England is probably more at ease with the idea of, of thinking of itself as part of the Catholic tradition. Than it's than it's been for a for a long while, perhaps even more so than it was in 1953. Uh, on the other hand, the Archbishop of Canterbury himself is very much associated with the evangelical tendency within the Church of England. Uh, as you say, these oaths are, are quite full-blooded statements of of Protestant faith. They they date back from that period after the the Revolution of 1688, when you've got this uh, intent desire to to exclude Catholics from succession to the throne to ensure that a Protestant succession is followed. There is an extra oath in the 2023 coronation compared to the 1953 one. And this is because Elizabeth II, she had a state opening of parliament between her accession and her coronation. It actually took a long time for the coronation in 1953 to be set up. And at that state opening, she made the accession oath. So it wasn't therefore at her coronation uh, whereas we will get these, you know, the, this succession of oaths uh, specifying the king's adherence to the Protestant faith. Of course, one, one oath that we've already had at the Accession Council was the king's up, oath to uphold the freedom of the Church of Scotland. Um, but the other oaths will take place at the coronation. And I think there's a strange paradox also that the coronation begins with these deeply Protestant oaths. And yet, during the coronation, the king is invested with vestments that are essentially adaptations of the, the, the vestments of the Catholic clergy. Tell me about that. That really astonished me. Yes, I mean, it's a medieval inheritance. Um, and it, it's a strange thing that the coronation, in spite of the fact that you know, the, the royal power is at the heart of the English Reformation, the English Reformation is not driven, perhaps with the possible exception of Cranmer, it's not driven by clerical reformers. It's driven by the monarchy. The monarchy is at the heart of the English Reformation. And yet, the coronation, which is the central right of the monarchy, remains an essentially Catholic-looking right. 
Uh, and the, the real major decision about this happens not under Elizabeth, because Elizabeth, of course, underwent an almost completely Catholic coronation. England was still formally a Catholic country at the time she was crowned. It wasn't until the first year of her reign that the, the Act of Uniformity is enacted. So it's 1603 when James I is crowned. A decision has to be made. Do we turn this into a much more Protestant ceremony, a much more overtly simplified uh, sort of um, attempt to revive, you know, some sort of, you know, a coronation of biblical kings or something? Or do, do we stay with all this medieval stuff that we've, we've inherited? And James writes to, I think it's, he writes to the Privy Council, and he says, um, yes, I see the argument for simplifying all this and taking away things like the anointing, which are thought of as superstitious. But on the other hand, I also have this claim to the Kingdom of France, and the French are very into this whole anointing thing, and they're Catholics. So if I want to be taken seriously as a potential claimant to the throne of France, I kind of need to make it seem Catholic. There's a sort of ideological eye of the storm effect here. So the Reformation emanates out from the British monarchy. But, the th but the, that means that everything hangs on the monarchy as a kind of replacement for the papacy. And so, you know, you've got Henry VIII's, you know, uh, assumption of papal power and so forth. And therefore, there's a sense in which the, the monarchy can't really change its immemorial traditions because that would diminish the majesty. And so in, in order not to diminish the majesty, you can't have Parliament or the Privy Council or anyone else turning around and saying to the king, you can't do what your ancestors did in this ancient ceremony of coronation, because coronation has to remain apart from any other authority. It has to remain you know, a divine authority that, that confers this direct relationship between the monarch and God on the new king. So there's a sense in which it has to remain in the way that it used to be. What happened when the crown passed to Lutheran princes? I read somewhere that the coronation of George I was conducted mainly in Latin. Why would that be? That's right. I mean, he spoke some English, but not very much. And so the, the decision was taken to uh, certainly the, the legal parts of it were in Latin because it was definitely a language that he understood and that he could confidently respond in. And therefore, they felt that the, the legal kind of requirements would be more credibly fulfilled if he was responding in a language that, that he understood. But it was politically unacceptable to make that language German because yeah, that would be perceived as foreign. Whereas, you know, Latin was a language that was used in, in convocation. It was used in Oxford and Cambridge colleges. It was used sometimes even in the Chapel Royal. So there is this, you know, tradition of Latin in the Church of England that had sort of clung on. And so, yes, it is mostly, it is mostly Latin. But I think the thing about the coronation of George I is that it brings back this much older idea that coronation is actually a form of king-making. And this is something which you find in the Middle Ages when the idea of automatic male primogeniture as the legal foundation of monarchy has not yet quite taken hold. And so therefore, if you really want to secure your legitimacy, you have yourself made king. And that, you know, that then means you're a sacred person, you're anointed, you can't then be, you can't then be killed in theory. And this, of course, is revived in 1714 because about 40 people have been skipped over in the decision to hand the crown to George of Hanover. And therefore, the coronation is absolutely critical to this kind of sense of legitimacy. But at the same time, that's antithetical to the spirit of the age because we're heading into the early 18th century at this point. People are not into things like anointing. 
they're not into this idea of miraculous power or, or magical ceremonies and so forth. And yet it's got to be done. It's got to be maintained. So I think the reason why the Georgian kings don't simplify anything, you know, they keep all these old ceremonies, even in the age of the Enlightenment, even when they want to be seen as these enlightened kings. I mean, George III, he has a, a figure of Britannia wearing the cap of liberty on his, uh, on his coronation invitations. They very much identify with the Enlightenment, many of these kings, but they can't change any of this because if they do, they would be highlighting the fact that the House of Hanover doesn't have the biggest, you know, uh, it doesn't have the, the strongest of, of hereditary claims to the, to the crown. And so that all these historical factors kind of come together to ensure that nothing ever really changes about the coronation. And then we move on to Queen Victoria. I was asking myself, who are the most fanatically Protestant monarchs in the history of this country? One of them would be Edward VI, who was probably too young when he became king to have very firm theological views, although whatever views he had would have been very Protestant, but as far as I can work out, the ceremony itself wasn't particularly Protestant. With Victoria, leaping forward to 1837, was it 1837 or 1838 that she was crowned? 38. 38 she was crowned. Okay. Um, and um, one of the things that's clear about Queen Victoria is that she's virtually a Lutheran or virtually Church of Scotland in the sense that she has no time for bishops at all. And it was Queen Victoria who instituted, who invented the tradition that the royal family should worship and the monarch should worship as members of the Church of Scotland while living in Scotland, which people imagine has been part of some sort of constitutional settlement ever since the Reformation. Not true. Actually, it was Victoria who began the tradition of worshipping in the local Kirk near Balmoral, thereby scandalising a great, member, great many members of the Church of England who didn't understand, and I actually still don't understand it and think it's a complete theological nonsense that the, you know, that the monarch worships in a church with actually you know, very, very distinct different theology as soon as they travel north of the border. There are so many contradictions built into this, but presumably Queen Victoria's coronation was every bit as mystical and magical, if you like, as any preceding or succeeding coronation. Uh, it was a bit farcical, actually, <laughs> Victoria's coronation. Uh, I think that the, the fact that it hadn't been properly rehearsed, um, so they couldn't get everybody together to, 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 to do any rehearsals, and they kind of made it up as they went along. I mean, it's true it hadn't been all that long since the coronation of, of William IV, so they had some experience. But William IV's coronation had been very, very stripped down and very spartan, the half-crowning, people, people jokingly called it. And Victoria, I mean, when she was crowned, she was sort of the last hope of the Hanoverian dynasty. I mean, she was the only one left, the last one standing. And so while we might look back at her reign as, in retrospect as being this kind of era-defining period to the point that, you know, people will use the word Victorian to describe the 19th century, even, you know, well outside the UK. It, 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 at the time, it felt like, you know, the, the monarchy's last hope, really. And there was a great deal of uh, op opposition to Victoria's coronation. There was opposition both from conservatives and liberals. Uh, the conservatives didn't like it because they felt it wasn't grand enough and, and that more time should be taken to do something much grander. The Liberals didn't like it because they weren't sure that the Queen should be crowned at all. They thought that Britain should be moving towards something like the Continental Monarchies, where you had a swearing-in ceremony, a bit like you get in 
uh, Spain and the Netherlands today, where, where, where the king just wears a military uniform and goes and stands behind beside a symbolic crown and swears an oath to the constitution. They thought that, you know, we should be moving in, in, in that sort of direction. And so what you end up with is this rather kind of shambolic coronation where, you know, the crown is put on the wrong way round, the, the, the queen's, uh, the archbishop forces the ring onto the queen's wrong finger. You know, one of the officials, the Lord Chancellor, falls down the uh, the steps and Victoria herself has to step forward and rescue him to stop him falling down these steps. Um, so it is a, a hilarious occasion, really. And of course, the monarchy had not been the monarchy had not been particularly popular. I mean, I know William the Fourth was popular, but he was only king for seven years. George the Fourth was not popular, and he had staged a very elaborate coronation, hadn't he? Very elaborate. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think the fact that he was essentially sovereign already, you know, and had been for yeah. decades, you know, by by this point as Prince Regent, uh, meant that he had this sort of uh, capacity to plan his coronation, you know, in, in desperately hoping that his father would die. Um, and so you've got this uh, sort of situation where he's able to put all the preparations in over a very long period of time and stages this extraordinary coronation, which is more, it's more cosplay than anything else. He requires everyone to turn up wearing these mock Tudor costumes, you know, with ribbons everywhere. There's this extraordinary book uh, which is in the royal collection and it's digitized. You, you can look it up online. It's all the people, what they had to wear. And ridiculous costumes. I mean, the poor Duke of Wellington, you know, the man who sort of saved, saved Britain from Napoleon, sort of forced to wear these outrageous outfits in order to wait, wait upon George IV. And of course, George IV was not a man who commanded a great deal of respect from those who were close to him or otherwise, and famously refused Caroline of Brunswick, his wife, uh, the, the right to come to the coronation, which he had no right to do. You know, anyone who is legitimately married to the monarch, you know, to the king at the time of his crowning is the queen. You know, legally, she's the queen. She's entitled to the, the coronation. The great Didn't storm. she turn up at the door of the abbey? Did, yes, did she turn up at the door indeed. of the abbey? Yes. 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 But she wasn't and, popular either, was she? No, she wasn't. She wasn't popular either. But there were people, I think, who hated George so much that they took Caroline's side just to spite him. And yeah. he also was the last monarch to hold these things like there was the coronation procession, which was the, the, a, a foot procession from the Abbey to Westminster Hall and the coronation banquet and the, and the king's champion riding in on a horse, yes. throwing down the gauntlet. And, so and the horse cracked in Westminster Hall, didn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So here we have, well, obviously the first coronation for 70 years. One expects lots of changes. To what extent do you think have certain people's fears that the whole thing would become, one's sick of saying woke or politically correct or whatever, but you know, to what extent do you think it reflects diversity and how skillfully has that been done? I think it's been done quite skillfully. I, I, I think the one thing that has really kind of misfired and, and sort of sunk like a lead balloon is, is the, the swearing allegiance of people. Uh, mm. I think that's something that wasn't really perhaps thought through as well as it might have been. But I think the, the inclusion of people of different faiths, I think it's been done quite carefully and it, it's not been done quite as clumsily as some people thought it might have done. Certainly when it comes to faith leaders, faith leaders have not been integrated into the service because the greeting of faith leaders happens after the service has been formally concluded with the blessing by the archbishop and the other Christian leaders. Uh, so the greeting of the faith leaders is, is not part of the service. It is part of the coronation, but it's not part of the coronation service. 
Um, and I think the, pre the, the, the role of representatives, lay representatives of the other faiths in taking certain items of regalia from the Dean of Westminster and kind of handing them in a kind of relay race to the Archbishop of Canterbury, it, it, it prevents the what could have been a bit clumsy, which is, you know, having members of other faiths actually handing the regalia to the king. So that's 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 not going to... I, I can see that. Doesn't I, I have to say, as a Catholic, I looked at it and thought, gosh, they've only given Vincent Nichols a walk-on part, a very, very small walk-on part, since I don't admire Vincent Nichols very much. I'm not particularly bothered, but the Cardinal just gets to say a few words, like the other church leaders, and he's also last in the line, isn't he? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, I mean, I suppose one could always argue that the Earl Marshal uh, takes a takes a prominent role and always has as a, as a, as a kind of lay representative of the of the Catholics of England. Uh, but yes, I think the, it, it's 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 a an interesting selection of faith leaders in terms of Christian faith leaders who've been chosen. And I think the way that the Anglicans from different parts of the islands have been integrated much more intimately than before. So you've got the the representative of the Scottish Episcopal Church is taking a, a much more prominent role than, than ever before. Um, and you've got the, the Church of Ireland Archbishop of Armagh as well, and the Archbishop in Wales, who are, who are all taking quite prominent roles. Um, that is interesting. I mean, the, the, particularly the role taken by the, um, the Scottish Episcopal Church, I wonder whether that's a tribute in part to the Queen Mother's great love of the Scottish Episcopal Church, she always, when in Scotland, preferred to worship as an Episcopalian and was committed to, the, to that church in which she grew up. And of course, the king was very close to his grandmother. So I suspect that might be in part that's, a tribute that's to That's interesting. That's interesting. That does raise a question. Is the king more high church than his mother and his grandfather and his great-grandfather? And his, you know, um, um, some, some people thought Edward VII was high church, but Queen Victoria certainly wasn't. I remember reading an interview... Um, with the wonderful old Archbishop Runcie, of whom I was very fond. I interviewed him when I was a young reporter. He told Humphrey Carpenter that Prince Charles was rather complicated theologically, but had a list of intercessions, long people he liked to pray for, and he would add to a list of you know, his own mental list. And this, this was when he was a young man. And there would occasionally be rumours that he was rather more high church, I don't mean Catholic necessarily, but rather more naturally disposed towards the ceremonial and sacramental side of Anglicanism than his family traditionally were. I think that is undoubtedly true. Uh, I, I think Elizabeth II was very low church. I think she had a kind of straight down the line, old fashioned uh, low church Anglican piety, sort of prayer, prayer book piety. I think that yes, um, the king is somebody who is more spiritually complicated, as you say. And I think that he draws on a number of different sources. Uh, he, you know, he has visited Mount Athos a number of times. Um, and I think his Greek Orthodox heritage is very important to him. I mean, the fact that there's a, a Greek chanted psalm that's going to be you know, chanted during the, during the coronation service, I think is hugely significant. And he also uh, had his oil, his, his holy oil, consecrated by an Orthodox archbishop, by the Orthodox patriarch, of, um, of Jerusalem, in addition to the Anglican Patriarch of Jerusalem. So, yeah, there are these um, interesting uh, uh, sort of hints of, of an interest in, in Greek Orthodoxy. I think also that there's, yes, it's certainly an openness to the idea of sacrality, of, of sacramentality. I think 
perhaps he is more interested in his own sacrality, his own status as king, his sacred status of king, than any king that we've had on the throne or any monarchs that we've had on the throne since the Stuarts, actually. I think he's fascinated by it. And in that respect, he could be compared to Charles II or, or even James I. That's very interesting. It, that could reflect a sort of vanity in a way, but it could reflect that, as people sometimes say, the king has become a, more, a much more devout Christian as he gets older, which, after all, is, is not unknown. And now, I remember years ago, people say, well, we don't know what he believes at all. Now I don't think there's any doubt that he's a professing and enthusiastic Christian. Yes, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any doubt of his commitment to, to, to Christianity and to the Church of England. But I think that the, the spiritual wells that he draws from are, are diverse. Uh, and I think that he, he's open to the, yeah, a sort of expansive view of spirituality that is, is quite different from some of his uh, recent predecessors, I think. And I was talking to somebody who knows him quite well, who's a prominent Catholic, who said that Charles most certainly is not anti-Catholic. One might imagine that sometimes being keen on orthodoxy is sort of code for being high church, but not liking Catholics very much. They certainly don't like Catholics on Mount Athos. But I was assured that he most certainly is not anti-Catholic, which is reassuring. Reading the order of service, I'm sorry it's been slimmed down, but it sounds to me as if it... It could have been a lot worse, particularly to what we were expecting yes. what, 20 years ago, yeah? Yes, yes. And I think even what we were expecting in September 2022, I mean, that the king indicated that he wanted a slimmed down monarchy. And many people interpreted that as meaning that, you know, there was going to be maybe no Eucharist, uh, maybe no Holy Communion service, that there was, you know, it, may, it was maybe going to be a much shortened service where, you know, the king isn't even anointed, maybe he's just crowned. These kind of worries that people had that it was going to be drastically altered have not materialised. Thank goodness for that. Francis, what a fascinating discussion. Let's have you back on the podcast as soon as possible to talk about something else related to the Church of England. Many, many thanks. <laughs>